Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. I'm still in verse 10, and the first line where Jesus is telling us how to pray, and he tells us that we should pray for God's glory, and then he says we should pray, your kingdom come. I'm still pursuing that theme. Now, I am arguing that the Lord's Prayer, with its six or seven little petitions, each one is very short, only a words, is a kind of list of the contents of the gospel. It's really saying to us that when we pray, we are praying the gospel. We're really taking hold of the entire Christian faith and turning it into prayer. If you think about these things, these are the major themes of the Christian gospel. God's glory, everything God does is from his glory and to his glory. Remember 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, they were arguing about uh, what kind of food to eat. Whatever you do, says Paul, do everything to the glory of God. We're meant to be people who just show others what God is like. We do everything to the glory of God. And we are involved in bringing in his kingdom and getting his will done here in this world. We pray for ourselves, we need basic provisions, we need our past to be dealt with, we need our future to be covered and protected. This is really a description of the entire gospel and the entire church and our total life in serving God. And, and yet it's a very short prayer, it's all compressed in very short sentences. But I'm suggesting to you that what it really is saying is that when you pray, you're praying the gospel. Everything you know about the gospel of Jesus, you're turning into prayer. You know something about the glory of God. You know something about God's kingdom. You know something of God's wanting to get his will done. You know something of God's provision and of how he forgives us our sins and how he protects us. This, this is the gospel. And you're turning it all into prayer and praying that these things might indeed happen. And I've quoted several times the verse in Ezekiel 39, where the prophet says, I will do these things, only I will be inquired of by the house of Israel to do it for them. God gives us certain promises, but those promises don't actually take place until we link up with them and pray. And this is true even of Jesus. Even Jesus is told, ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. And that's what Jesus is doing now. If you ask what Jesus is doing in the heavenly glory, well, he's ruling and reigning. He reigns over all things. He must put all things under his feet, says the Bible, until he's put all of his enemies down. He'll go on ruling and reigning until he's put all of his enemies down. But he does it by requesting from the Father. He's interceding. He's saying, I will that you'll keep them from the evil one. I will that they'll get to be one. I, I, I wish, I'm asking that they get to be with me where I am in glory. Jesus is ruling and reigning by means of intercession and asking the Father to give him what the Father has already promised. So this is what prayer is. It's turning the promises of God into requests. And the promises of God don't get fulfilled unless we are asking him to fulfill them. And if we don't, then I think the kingdom of God is slowed down. Um, God will find somebody, he'll find an intercessor somewhere. If, if it's not you, he'll wait a bit and find somebody else. But he does carry forward his kingdom in this way. So, what I'm suggesting with regard to the kingdom is 
this, what Jesus is really saying is this. Think of everything you know, he says, about God's glory. Think of everything you know about God's kingdom, and then turn that into prayer. Turn it into requesting God that these things you read about and you know about in the entire Christian faith may actually become a reality. So that's what I've been pursuing. This is the third time that I'm looking at this theme. We looked at it the other night, and I said a few things again this morning in the other fellowship, but I'm still pursuing it. Uh, tonight, I'm really wanting to do two things. We are pray- if, you're, if you're praying, your kingdom come, you're really praying for two things. First of all, you're praying that the purposes of God might be fulfilled. God is going to conquer all nations, not, not in a jihad, not in some holy war, uh, in any violent kind of way, but conquering with the word. Remember in the book of Revelation, the, the, the word, the Son of God, goes out riding on a white horse, a military stallion, not a donkey. He came into Jerusalem in humility upon a donkey once. He's not riding a donkey anymore. He's riding a white stallion a conqueror's horse, an an Arabian white horse, which ancient military conquerors used to use. And he's going out, he's already conquered, he is conquering, and he's planning to do some more conquering. Conquering, having conquered, and doing some more conquering, says the Bible. And out of his mouth goes a sword, the sword of the word, the sword of the power of God's gospel. So he's a conqueror, conquering with the the word of God, reaching all nations, and he will do that. And uh, he will not he will not hand over the kingdom to the Father until he's put all enemies beneath his feet. And there are amazing prophecies in Scripture about coming to the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ, of the fullness of the Gentiles coming in all nations, and even of Israel being saved. And what does that lead to? It leads to life from the dead, Romans 11, 15, Romans 11, 12. And so when we pray, we're praying that these things might happen. And then I think we're also praying that they may happen through us. The Lord's Prayer has got that two halves in it. First of all, you pray your glory, your kingdom, your will, but then you pray for yourself, my food, my daily bread, my past, my future. The whole prayer divides into those two. Because we are the agents of the kingdom. We are the ones through whom the kingdom of God will come. And not only does Jesus go out conquering and to conquer, we go out conquering and to conquer as well. You don't always see it in the book of Revelation because they sometimes use different translations. When you have in the book of Revelation, to him who overcomes, I'll do this and this and this, it's the same word. To him who conquers, it's the same word. We also are going out conquering and to conquer. And God will give various blessings to us as we overcome or as we conquer. We are with him and when Jesus goes out riding on this military horse, he takes the armies of God with him. Nothing violent, the the Islamic way of thinking about these things is to do it militarily. For us, we don't have a a military jihad, we spiritualize it. It's a spiritual warfare, a spiritual conquering. It's nothing to do with any kind of violence. It's, it's uh, using the weapon of God's word, and we conquer by bringing people to faith. It's that kind of spiritual battle. So then, I want us to unfold those things tonight, and I've got two sections to what I want to say. I want, first of all, to make the point that the kingdom of God is not yet glorious. 
If you think about the Bible's teaching concerning the kingdom, I've said a few things about it, but if you think about it again, you'll see that the kingdom has come, but it's not glorious, it's not visible. Every eye does not see it, every knee does not bow. People don't bow to the name of Jesus. Not every tongue says that Jesus is Lord. He's the king, but it's not totally visible yet. That's the meaning of the phrase in the Gospels where Jesus talks about the mystery of the kingdom. The mystery of the kingdom is that it's here, but it's a kind of secret. To you, says Jesus, is given the mystery of the kingdom. It's a kind of secret that people don't know, but, but you do know. To you, the mystery has been, as it were, unfolded and, and, and told, you're told about it. But for the world, they haven't seen it yet. It's the mystery of the kingdom, something locked up, something which they don't see. And so the kingdom, I can put it like this, the kingdom is not yet glorious. It was John the Baptist's problem. Do you remember John the Baptist was put in prison once? And it really troubled him. And uh, he really had serious doubts. And he sent a message to Jesus, are you the one who's to come? Or should we look for another? In other words, he had he who had preached that Jesus is the Saviour. Behold, he's coming, said John the Baptist. I'm just uh, preparing the way. I'm not worthy to undo his shoelaces. And uh, he'll come and he'll baptise with the Spirit. And he'll, come back to, he'll baptise with fire. Which means he'll come with salvation and he'll come with judgment. He'll come baptising with the Spirit, pouring out the Spirit. And he'll come pouring out fire. He'll come with judgment that burns things up and gets rid of sin and wickedness salvation and judgment. And John is speaking as an Old Testament prophet. And Old Testament prophets did not distinguish between the different phases of what God would do. They saw the whole lot all in one go. When you read the Old Testament prophecies, you can get the first coming and the second coming all in the same prophecy. Isaiah chapter 11, a child is born. But before the chapter's over, the lion is lying down with the lamb and there's a new heavens, a new earth, with his righteousness. It's all in the same vision. The Old Testament prophets, including John the Baptist, who really belongs to the Old Testament, they see all of these things all in one big panorama. So John is like an Old Testament prophet. Remember Jesus said, there's no one greater than John the Baptist, although he who is least in the kingdom is greater than he. John the Baptist was not in the New Covenant kingdom. He's in the Old Covenant. He doesn't see things from a post-Pentecostal viewpoint. And so here's John the Baptist expecting salvation and judgment but the judgment has not come there's no, there's no putting down of wickedness Romans have not been thrown out of the country Herod's not been dealt with the fact that the, the Pharisees and Sadducees are as wicked as ever and John is in prison he's about to lose his life and he, and he, he can see that things are not going to work out well for him so he's a bit puzzled he says, to he says to Jesus, I, I, did I get it right? You know, I, thought, I thought you were the saviour. I thought you were coming to bring fire and judgment and deal with sin. Are you the one who's to come or, or did I get it wrong? Should we look for somebody else? Are you just a, another one preparing the way and the real saviour's yet to come? And Jesus said, go back and tell John about the miracles and the signs. The miracles are the signs of the kingdoms. They are the foretaste of final glory. Every, every miracle is a foretaste, a kind of flash from glory. It's a little bit of the final glory now. Remember what Jesus said to Martha and Mary when they said, I know he'll be raised at the last day. Jesus said, I am the last day. I am the resurrection. Life. And I'm here now. I can do it now. He brings, the, he brings the last day forward and he raises the dead, which is what he'll do at the end of the world. So the miracles are a kind of foretaste of the final glory. And 
Jesus says, go and tell John about the miracles. And then say, and the poor have good news preached to them. Not only is it, uh, you're just getting a foretaste of the final glory, right now what we're doing is giving good news to poor people, needy people, people who are sinners and they're despised by the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees. Go and tell John, uh, the, uh, the final judgment is only here in flashes, little bits of the miracles. But what's going on now is the preaching of good news to people who are desperate and needy. The final judgment's not completely coming yet. That's the uh, message to Jesus. And so, at the moment, the kingdom of God is weak. Not every knee is bowing, not every tongue is confessing. And we are to go out into the world, and we know something of the power of the Spirit. We know something of what's possible and what's coming. We have little flashes of glory, little bits of the final glory that's to come. But... The kingdom is weak. And you remember the various ways in Jesus, that Jesus puts it? He says it's like a mustard seed. You plant some tiny little seed in the ground. It hardly seems worth bothering about. Yet that little mustard seed will sprout and grow, get bigger and bigger and bigger. That's how the kingdom of God works. You do little things. You do something that seems quite weak. Go to some place and you preach a little bit or bear a little bit of witness. And suddenly someone gets saved. And it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And out of that comes, comes a great, a great tree and, uh, and miracles and wonders of salvation take place. Think of how the gospel came to Europe. Remember how the gospel came to Europe? It's, it's in the book of Acts. Paul says, let's go and see the churches where we preached last year. And goes off around the area that we call Turkey, the other side of Turkey, the uh, eastern side of Istanbul or Constantinople. And uh, they're about to visit all these churches and they try to go into Ephesus. Suddenly the Holy Spirit forbids them. They're forbidden by the Holy Spirit. And so they say, well, well, let's go to Bithynia. And they want to go to Bithynia, but they're forbidden to go to Bithynia. They can't go north, they can't go south. They don't want to go back and the sea is in front of them. They can't go north or east or south or west. What do you do when you can't go north or east or south or west? You stay where you are and you pray. They just stay there and they pray. And they seek God. We don't, seem to, we don't want to go back home. We can't go any, anywhere forward. We won't let us go north and we won't let us go south. So what do we do? That night, they have a vision of a man of Macedonia. I suppose he's dressed in Macedonian clothes. And they recognize he comes from Macedonia. And he says, come over, come over and help us. 200 miles ahead, there's a massive bit of Aegean Sea. 200 miles away, there's Macedonia. They hadn't thought of going there. Hadn't crossed their mind to cross over an ocean. Come over to Macedonia and help us. And so they do. They get in the boat and they cross that bit of ocean and sea. When they get there, there's nothing there. There's no synagogues there. It's just a handful of women. They've got a little Jewish women. And they've got a little prayer meeting. And Paul joins the prayer meeting. And one woman's heart is opened. The, the heart of Lydia is opened. A place where there's nothing, where there's no synagogue, no preaching, no Bible, no Old Testament, no, 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 no uh, synagogue, just a handful of women, one of them a business lady. But that is the beginning of the evangelization of Europe. And we would be not be here tonight if those things had not taken place. Just, just a little handful of things happening. 
And yet it's the opening up of the, the whole continent of Europe. It leads to the Philippian jailer being saved, the woman being saved, the, the Lydia, the business lady being saved. And from there it goes, to, it goes here, Thessalonica, Corinth, Rome, and the whole of Europe opens up for the gospel. A mustard seed. Just when you get stuck and don't know where to go, and, and some, suddenly God does something which you hadn't even thought of before. And it's a mustard seed. And the whole kingdom of God begins to open up. It's, it's simple and humble, and, and you're simply following God one step at a time. Or the Bible says it's like leaven. You have, you, you, you're cooking some bread, and you put a bit of yeast in it. You put a bit of leaven in it, and the yeast or the leaven makes the thing swell and swell and swell and swell. A leaven, and it fills the whole oven. And the huge loaf of bread comes out of it. The kingdom of God is like a little bit of yeast put in something and it makes it grow and swell. The whole picture is of something small and insignificant in its beginnings. Ah, but it grows and it grows and it grows. You you never know what's going to come when you simply follow God. Totally different from the way we do things. You were launching a kingdom, how would you do it? Well, you'd, you'd, you'd borrow a football stadium, you'd advertise on the TV and all the newspapers, you'd get the biggest possible meeting you can, and you would launch your movements. And God never does that. Even when Jesus was born, he didn't do that. Here's this little despised teenager, Mary, she's about 19, 18 or 19 years old, I suppose, and Joseph, a carpenter which means he's got no job at all, really. He just goes around repairing, making things out of bits of wood for other people and repairing things. About the lowest job you could possibly find. In Galilee, you know about Galilee? There was, there was Judea in the south where Jerusalem was and all the big guys were down the south. Herod, Pilate, Caiaphas, all the big guys were down south. There was, there was Samaria in the middle somewhere the dubious origins or mixed, mixed origins, half of them were Assyrian by background. And then way, way away from everything was Galilee. They called it the people who sat in darkness. Isaiah called it the people who sat in darkness. Galilee of the Gentiles. So many Gentiles there. Remember Jesus once cast out some demons and they went into the pigs. That's interesting. Pigs were illegal. What are, what are people doing looking after pigs? Oh, it's Galilee. You do anything in Galilee. You don't get pigs in Judea. In Galilee, Galilee of the Gentiles, you get these guys looking after pigs and all sorts of disgusting things like that. It's miles away from anywhere. And there was a saying, can anything good come out of Galilee? I mean, Galilee, when people discovered that Jesus came from Galilee, they said, well, he can't possibly be the saviour. Can anything good come out of Galilee? <laughs> but that's the God's way of doing things. And who gets invited to the, to the birth of the Son of God. Shepherds. I mean, you know about shepherds? You know what happens in Africa? Young people, they go through primary school and they, and they have to search for school fees. And then they get, try and get to secondary school. And then maybe some, some, some families totally destitute. They can't even afford the most elementary school fees and, and the boy or the girl just drops out of school. What do you do in the rural areas of the world where somebody just drops out of school in a total ascendancy? You send him out to look after the sheep and the goats. Shepherds, the people who have dropped out of society, totally insignificant. But when, but when the Son of God comes, the angels appear to shepherds, shepherds, and appear, I've come to tell you news of great joy. I mean, imagine saying those things to shepherds. And then there's some other weird guys a couple hundred miles away who are astrologers, spend all the time looking at the stars. 
They know a little bit about the book of Daniel. He was a wise man from the east, and they're wise men from the east. They know a little bit about Daniel, that some saviour's meant to become one day. And as they're looking at the stars, some star appears from nowhere, and it's moving. And they say, this must be it. This must be what Daniel told us about, and what we're expecting. We better, this star's so low in the sky, it's even going somewhere. We better follow it. And they follow the star. It takes them all the way, and it disappears. God doesn't let you find Jesus only by stars. And they have to go and ask, where's the Savior to be born? And somebody has to tell them about the Bible. You can't get saved by stars, you need the Bible as well. And when they read that the Savior is going to be born in Bethlehem, and they start following the Bible, then the star appears again and leads them to the very, very house. It hangs low over the sky, it's hanging right over the house. And these weird, wise men from the east are brought to the very door where baby Jesus is there. And they worship him. But you see, those are the only people who are invited. Weird guys from the east and a few shepherds. I mean, you wouldn't have done that. You'd have, you'd have tried to get the Prime Minister or the Queen or, or the Hospital of Canterbury, wouldn't you? You'd try and launch this with some big name, some famous football player or something. You'd try to get a bigger crowd as you can with the most famous people you can find to be, the, to be there as your guest of honour. Not God. Get the guest of honour of the shepherds. Guess the bonners are weird guys who spend their time gazing at the stars and hoping that they're going to get salvation somehow. Most of the people are invited. The mustard seed, the leaven, the humble, lowly kingdom of God. And so you see, God's way of spreading his kingdom is, is simply following him, following his instincts. I can give you many examples of it in my own life. I began life in Africa doing a course in English as a second language in the University of Zambia. I didn't have the slightest idea why I was doing a course in English as a second language, but English is my first language. He said to me, what, what am I doing here, learning English as a second language? English is my first language. I had no idea that I would spend my whole life preaching to people who spoke English as their second language. And I didn't even know why, why then I didn't know why I was there. Now I do. You just led somewhere. You don't even know why you're going there. I mean, where's, where's Paul stuck? Can't go to Bithynia, can't go to Asia, can't, doesn't want to go backwards, see in front of him. He doesn't even know why he's there. Ah, yes, but suddenly something happens that takes him somewhere. He follows God. And it's opening up something huge and momentous. So this is the way the kingdom, of, uh, kingdom works. It's, it's unglorious at the moment. Uh, to, to the world. It's glorious to us. We have beheld his glory, says John. God sent his son, and we have beheld his glory. Other people don't, but we do. We see his glory by faith. But in terms of, of a visible glory and manifested honor, the world doesn't see it. We see it with the eye of faith. We see it through the scripture. We see now what everybody will see one day. One day every knee will bow. One day every tongue will confess. But we bow the knee now. And our tongue confesses now. We see what people do not see. Everybody will see it one day. This, this sort of invisible kingdom, this secret kingdom, this mystery of the kingdom. So when we are praying, we're praying that this kingdom may go forward, that things may happen in our world. And I've been suggesting to you that even what's going on, even the movement of peoples all over the place, immigration patterns, and God moves whole nations around and it's happening in England. Whole nations are coming. 20% of, of Switzerland don't come from Switzerland. 80% of, of Qatar don't come from Qatar. 
God moves whole nations around, puts them in places where they can be reached and where they hear the gospel. And we must be ready for that in our age. Here's, here, are people, here are people flooding into Britain. And there was a time, it's, it's not true at the moment, but there was a time when the queue at the British High Commission in Nairobi was 48 hours long. You stepped in the queue and you stayed there all night. You know, and we sold, being entrepreneurial Kenyans, we sold you coffee all night. And then you kept going the next day. And finally, about 48 hours time, we finally got to the front of the queue asking for a visa. Probably the answer was no. Why is that? Well, because people are so desperate to get to Western countries, not, not queuing up to get to Beijing or Mecca or, or uh, Mumbai. They're queuing up to get to ex-Christian countries, countries that have been Christian, with welfare state and all the rest of it. But you see, that's the chance of a lifetime. Here, here are people flooding into the Western world, and they're, they're needy, they're poor, they're desperate, they're trying to escape their own countries where they're so poor. It, uh, people don't always like it. They, what's, what's all these foreigners doing here, they say. But it's the, chance to, it's the chance of a lifetime. And we should see what God is doing. Uh, and it's happened before. If you look at the history of the world, everything that God does is for the sake of his kingdom. He moves whole nations around. And he's still doing it. You just open your eyes. He still moves whole nations around in the interest of his gospel. And we are to see what he's doing and, and, and flow with this quietly growing leaven which is going to fill the whole world. The earth will be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. So this is what's happening and we are to flow with it and we flow with it by prayer. We, we, we do these things by prayer. The first thing we do is, is pray. When Paul couldn't go north and couldn't go south and couldn't go east and couldn't go west, he stayed where he was and he sought God. And God dramatically gave him a vision. Called him to something that he really hadn't thought of. He spent a lot of time praying. And we should do that. We should seek the Lord in prayer and follow his guidance step by step and lay hold of his kingdom and take it to others. But then the second thing that I want to say, what I'm saying is in two halves, is we are to lay hold of the kingdom for ourselves. Not only do we want to, as it were, extend this kingdom, the Bible tells us that we are to inherit the kingdom. Remember the rich young ruler, he came to Jesus, he said to Jesus, what must, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I think people don't really understand that passage. They think, it's, they think that the rich young ruler is asking how to be saved. Don't think he is. If he, if he was, then Jesus gave him a very strange answer. He said, keep the law. That's a very funny thing to say to a person trying to get saved. If someone came to you and said, how can I get saved? You say, well, keep the law of Moses. Would you, would you say that? I don't think so. And then the rich young ruler says, I've kept it. Jesus doesn't quarrel with him, does he? No, no, you haven't. He says, all right, maybe you have. Now I want to ask you to do something which goes beyond the law of Moses. I, Jesus, not in the law of Moses, I, Jesus, he says, I'm asking you, you know, the wealthy guy, give it all up and give it, give it away. Come and join my ministry team. Come and follow me. Let me train you. When I, when I go to Capernaum, you come with me. When I'm preaching there, you come with me. When I'm casting out demons, you, you be there as well. Travel around with me. Follow me. Be with me. Come and join my ministry team. And I'll, I'll, I'll work out the purpose of God in your life and you'll inherit eternal life. You'll find the liveliness and the power of God 
in your soul. Number one, get to a level of holiness which outstrips and goes beyond the law. Number two, listen to my personal commands. Number three, join my ministry team and let me train you. I'm putting it in, in, in modern language. That's how you go with God. You inherit the kingdom. You come under Jesus and let Jesus train you and raise you and exalt you and bring you into the kingdom. A lot of suffering in it. Very frequently it, it involves tough situations. You don't grow very much unless you go through tough situations. Have you ever met an outstandingly godly person? You meet someone who is so spiritually minded you sort of marvel at their dedication, their spirituality. And you go and you say, well, well how, how do you get to be like this? You inquire into their lives a little bit. You always find that somewhere there's great suffering. Somewhere they've been through some great struggle. They've learned to pray. I remember asking a, a young lady in her 20s that question many, many years ago. One of, one of the members of our church, a very spiritual lady, I said to her, Esther, well, where, where do you learn to pray like the way you do? I know you pray a lot. Where do you learn to do it? She said to me, oh, pastor, I'll tell you a story. She said, when I went to school, there were 12 of us in our family. Average Kenyan family is eight. There were 12 of us in our family. And uh, two of us were almost the same age, just 10 months apart, both in the same year at school. And uh, examination time comes when there's hundreds of thousands of people taking the same exams. The two people were, as it were, coalesced and only one result came back. They confused the two names and only one result came back. And with hundreds of uh, candidates, there's no way to do anything about it. So only one of the two of us could go to secondary school. And my parents put the older of the two, and I dropped out of school. And they sent me out to the bush to look after sheep. My whole life was ruined. I knew, I knew I'd done well in the exam. I knew I could go to secondary school. I knew I'd go to university one day. But suddenly my whole life is, is ruined, and I'm just looking after the sheep out in the bush. He said, there's only one thing I could do, and that was pray. Every day, I prayed all day that somehow would, God would rescue me and get me back into the system somehow. He said, that, that's where I learned to pray. One day, I just found myself talking in tongues. Didn't, didn't, didn't know about tongues, it just, I just found myself doing it one day. And then something of the baptism of the Spirit, all my own, just looking, looking after the sheep out in the bush. Terrible times. But if you see, he said, if you, if you, if you see me praying, that's where, I learned, that's where I learned to be like that. There's suffering somewhere. Do you remember Paul went back to churches where he had evangelized a year ago? He went back to those same churches, going around all of the churches, telling them, we must, by means of many tribulations, inherit the kingdom of God. It's normally tribulations by means of the church, not just through in the sense of going through them, but by means of them. It's the very tribulations that, that drive you to pray. It's the very troubles that, seek, that make you seek God. By means of many tribulations, you inherit the kingdom of God. There's often a lot of struggles and difficulties in it. So then, how does the New Testament tell us to pray for ourselves and seek to have this kingdom come, not only in the whole world, but in our own lives? Well, a number of points. Here they are, five of them. Number one, the first one is you must learn to hear God's voice. And remember in the New Testament that you have these parables of the kingdom. And the first one is the parable of the sower. And if you remember Mark chapter 4, Matthew chapter 13, 
if you remember the New Testament, the parable of the sower is the key to all of the parables. Jesus said, if you don't understand this parable, how will you understand all the others? This one is the key to everything. The key to all of the parables of the kingdom is the parable of the sower. And the parable of the sower and the various seeds, I'm hoping that you know it, is about hearing. Some people don't even hear at all. The devil snatches the word of God away. Some people respond so enthusiastically, but the word's not really gone in. They're still not hearing. Some people do hear, and, and, and the word goes in, but... Thorn, but thorns and thistles and weeds come and strangle them. The word of God doesn't actually take root very much. Some hear, and the word of God goes into their hearts, and they persevere with an honest and true heart, says that parable, and they bear fruit. It changes their lives. The key is whether you hear God. Some don't even get to the point of hearing. They, they, their ears are there, but they don't seem to, to hear there's three kinds of people, says Jesus. There are people who have no ears. There are people who have ears, but they don't hear. And there are people who have ears, and they do hear. And Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, that's not everybody, some people don't have ears to hear. He who has ears to hear, he's got something, he's got the ability to hear. Most people don't have ears. But even if you do have ears, you're still not necessarily hearing. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let that word go in. Let it sink into his heart. Let him, let him persevere with that word with an honest and true heart. The first thing is, you must hear God, God's voice. Not the same as reading your Bible, although it's, it's involved, reading the Bible is involved. But you can read the Bible but not hear God. You can get interested in the Bible intellectually. You know, the Bible is very interesting, though it is. Immensely interesting. That's not quite the same as hearing God speak. People who crucified Jesus knew their Bibles. Pharisees knew the Bible. They, they knew their Bible inside out. They knew all the Psalms. They knew the law. And indeed, they complained at Jesus because they didn't think Jesus was keeping their law. They wanted to be more Bible people than Jesus was. And Jesus said to them, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Yet they it is that bear witness to me, and you won't come to me. They're willing to search the scriptures, but they don't actually come to Jesus. They don't actually respond and hear God's voice. It's not quite the same as just knowing your Bible. It's having such a hungry heart that you can hear God. God can speak to you. Largely connected with the scriptures, other, other things, prophetic words and so on. Must not contradict the scriptures, they're just telling you, giving you little hints about how to apply the scriptures, mainly through hearing God through the scriptures, through the message that comes from the scriptures. You have to learn to hear God. Can you hear God? Can God speak to you? Can God rebuke you? Can God guide you? Can you hear his voice? You spend time not just with God, not just with the Bible, but with God. Remember the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they were depressed and uh, unhappy because Jesus has just been crucified. And Jesus is risen from the dead. They don't even know it. But Jesus is risen from the dead, and he comes and he says, well, what's wrong with you? Why are you so miserable? Well, haven't you heard about Jesus? We, we had hoped. We, we've given up all hope now, but we had hoped. 
that he would be the one who would redeem Israel. And Jesus says, oh, you, you foolish people, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets wrote and spoke. And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he shows them, he shows them himself in all the scriptures. That's the way to read your Bible. Let Jesus show you himself. Let Jesus be there with you. And you're reading your Bible in the company of Jesus. And he's, pointing, he's pointing to himself in the scriptures. But read, read your Bible in the presence of God. Don't, don't come at it intellectually. Come at it with a hungry heart, hungry to hear God speak and learn things you didn't know and hear God speak to you and rebuke you and change you. The secret of, of entering the kingdom begins with sensitivity to the word of God, the voice of God in Scripture and in the preaching of Scripture. And then secondly, the secret of entering the kingdom is repentance. Remember, that's what Jesus and John the Baptist said. They said, the very first thing they ever said was, repent, change your mind, totally adjust your viewpoint. Repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John said that, and Jesus himself said that. John said, any moment now, Jesus is going to come. He's going to bring all sorts of changes. You better get ready, says John. And the word repent basically means to change your mind. It's a bit confusing. We use the word repentance to mean turn from sin. Well, in the New Testament, there are two different words. There's the word repent, which means to rethink, and there's the word to be converted or to turn. Acts 3.19 has both words in the same verse. Repent and turn. There's two different things. The first one means to change your mind. Repentance is the first breath of trusting God. When you begin to think, no, I'm wrong. I've got to start changing, changing my viewpoint. I've got to start trusting God. It's when you're changing your mind. And it leads to turning away from sin, but that's a, that's a bit later. You change your mind even before you believe, or I could say repentance is the first breath of faith, the very first thing that happens when you're believing. You're seeing how wrong you are, and you've got to start trusting, other than what you've believed before. Changing your mind. How often do you change your mind? You see... We are so ignorant. We are appallingly, disgustingly ignorant. We really are. We get everything wrong. Every single thing that we think about God that we're born with is wrong. Our view of God, our view of ourselves, our view of righteousness, everything we are, as it were, born with is all wrong. We have wrong views of God, wrong views of ourselves, wrong views of conscience, wrong views of sin. Nothing that we believe in by nature is right. And at every point we have to rethink. We have to relate to God. We didn't, we didn't even know it was possible to know God. Now you have to find out and change your mind. We didn't even know all these things that God's got out there for us. You've got to, day by day by day, open up your mind and see new things that God is showing you. Rethink, says John. Repent. Jesus has not even come yet. Even before he comes, says John the Baptist, adjust yourself to something new that God's going to do for you. Rethink. And get, get, and get baptized. John calls upon them to get baptized. So there's a whole community in Israel, a whole body of people who've all been baptized by John the Baptist, who are waiting for the Saviour, and they're already adjusting their, their thinking that when he comes, new things are going to take place. Repent. Rethink. Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And if you are to experience the kingdom, there'll be a lot of rethinking. There'll be changing your mind about all sorts of things. God will show you things that you never knew before. And you'll find you're adjusting to what God is revealing to you day by day and week by week. The scary thought, I sometimes say to myself, I talk to myself like this, 
I say, Michael, Ethan, what's going to happen if the day before you go to heaven you discover something you never knew? And that will mean that all of your life you were wrong except on the last day. It's a bit depressing, isn't it? Imagine, imagine being wrong for your whole life. Just before you go to heaven, you find out that you were wrong all your life. And I say to myself, even if God tells me something on the day before I go to heaven, I'm going to accept it. Let God go on teaching you and teaching you and teaching you. Some things you might not learn until late in life, all right? Or something new for you every single day. Don't ever, don't ever close yourself up. Don't ever get to the point where you can't take anything new. And don't ever get to the point where God can't reveal something to you you didn't know before. Stay open. Stay open to God. Learn to rethink. Learn to adjust. Learn to let God correct you. The pathway of repentance, and I'm defining repentance in that way, the pathway of rethinking, readjusting, it leads, it leads to turning away from sin, it leads to turning around or being converted, as the Bible says. It leads to amendments of life. But it begins with your thought life. It begins by what you believe and what you think about yourself. And you have to adjust, and God shows you new things. Repent because the kingdom of God is right there for you. It's at hand. It's near. The kingdom is Jesus himself. And he's there, willing as it were, to flood your life, come into your life. It does require this constant openness to God. So to inherit the promises, you have to stay open to God. And then it requires, Jesus often puts it in terms of being like a child. It requires childlike faith. They, they brought children to Jesus on one occasion, and the disciples tried to stop the people bringing children. They don't, don't bring all these children. The master doesn't want children all the time, they said. And Jesus said, oh no, oh no. Let the little children come. Let the humblest, lowliest, powerless people around come to me, because those, those are the people I like. Because to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Which doesn't mean the kingdom of heaven belongs to children. It means the kingdom of heaven belongs to people who've got the simplicity of children. He's not talking about children as such. He's talking about adults. But the people who are like that, you see, children, they... Some people think that children are innocent. Think that, and you don't know many children. But uh, (laughs) it's not innocence that Jesus is thinking of. It's sort of uh, not knowing very much having to be shown things and having to learn and being powerless. Children don't have any power. They can't, they can't uh, throw their weight around. They just have to learn and be instructed and be taught and uh, tell them things that they didn't even know. And that's what you're to be like. You're to be childlike in just learning from the laws and letting God teach you as a child. Don't, don't be clever. Children don't claim to know everything. At least I hope they don't. They just have to be taught and instructed. And Jesus said, let these children come. I like children, said Jesus. Let me pray for them. Let me teach them. Let me help them. Because to people like that, the kingdom of God belongs to people like that. Simplicity, childlikeness, openness, being, being ready to be instructed because actually you don't have much experience of, of life or of the kingdom of God. Childlike faith. And then, fourthly, in my list, number one, I'm saying we need to be open to God's voice. Number two, we need to be able to rethink, which is just another way of saying the same thing. Number three, we must have this kind of childlike faith, says the Bible. And number four, we must have patience. It's through faith and patience 
that we inherit the promises. You have to persevere to inherit the kingdom. When some God calls you to do some little thing like crossing over the sea into Philippi or somewhere, well, when you get there, there's, there's nothing that was there worth having. There's a few ladies in the prayer meeting. I mean, what, what's, what's the good of that? I suppose Paul would say, well, you know, and we're there, we, we crossed 200 miles of oceans, just, there's nothing here, just these ladies praying by the river somewhere. Don't despise small things. Remember what Zechariah said? He said, don't despise the day of small things. Have patience, persevere. And uh, just watch God grow things. When a church grows slowly, in the end, it's more stable than the church that, that grows fast. You get a church where, where hundreds come in on day one, you're likely to find hundreds go out on day two. You know, they, 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 go, they go out as easy as they come in. You, you arrange big entertainment, and big, but you lay on things that bring, bring in the crowds. But the only trouble is you have to keep on doing it. Jesus fed 5,000. And from that point on, he had crowds and crowds and crowds. You'd have crowds too. You, you feed 5,000, you'll have crowds as well. And crowds followed Jesus. And Jesus said to them, you're not even following me because you saw the miracles. Other people come because they want miracles. They're not very reliable. Jesus didn't trust himself to such people. And some are even worse than that. Some are not even coming for miracles. They're coming because of what they can get. Jesus says to them, you, you're not even following me because of the miracles, you're following me because you ate your fill of the loaves. All those people left him. The whole lot left him. And Jesus said to his disciples, will you also go away? You can go away too if you want. I'm not, I'm not make, making you follow me. You want to go, you can go as well. And they said, no, Lord, we're, we're not like them. We have come to see that you have the words of eternal life. No, we're not going. We're staying with you. That people can come for all sorts of reasons. If the reasons don't persist, they, they go as easy as they come. But when someone comes because they see that the gospel of salvation is there, and that's what they want, and they stay, the greatest privilege I ever have as a pastor and a preacher is going back to places where I've not been for many, many years. Sometimes I have a chance to go somewhere where I went 10, 15 years ago. It's a great privilege when that happens. I remember once going back to Nairobi Baptist Church for one of their anniversaries where I was pastor many years ago in the 70s. And I would see all my old friends still there. And on some occasions I would see one of my old friends who'd been saved there years ago, 15, 20 years ago. And I'd go to greet my old friend. And as I'd go and say, oh, it's my old friend, he's, he's here. And then suddenly I'd say to myself, no, it can't be my old friend, he's too young. My old friend must be about 60 now. You know, he's not, he's, not, he's not a teenager, though he was a few years ago. And then I would realize, it's not my old friend, it's his son looking like him, looking like his dad 20 years ago, or it's her daughter looking like her mum when I knew her mum 20 years back. So not only are their parents are still there, the next generation is there as well. There's no, there's no greater privilege than people being saved and they're still serving God. Five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years on, and their children are serving God as well is the greatest privilege. But that thing tends to come slowly, one by one, real converts, real people who are faithful to God. It requires patience to inherit the kingdom, both personally and in church life. By faith and patience, we inherit the promises. It doesn't take patience to get saved. You can get saved tonight. It takes no patience at all. Just believe in Jesus and you're saved. There's no persevering and struggling and finally getting to the salvation. There's no patience required for salvation. You can be saved straight away. But inheriting the kingdom and seeing the purpose of God go forward by faith and patience in good works, we inherit the promises. 
Here's the Bible, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 12. Seeing God's kingdom come requires patience. Think of the early missionaries. First missionary that ever was was William Carey. It was 30 years before he saw his first convert. Think of David Livingstone. He never saw a convert at all. Not one single person was saved through the ministry of David Livingstone. As one guy pretended to be saved, he just, he just hoped Livingston would give him some guns to deal with his next-door neighbour, whose tribe he didn't like. No, no real convert came to the ministry of David Livingston, except that he opened up the whole of Africa, drew maps and prepared the way for everybody else. Everybody else who came afterwards came because of what he did. If he hadn't been there, nobody else could have followed him. But he himself achieved virtually nothing. But he opened up Africa for everybody who went in winning people to Jesus. Sometimes you, you're not so much reaping as sowing. I think in, in modern Britain, these are days of laying foundations. You, you're not going to have an outpouring of the Spirit until there's something for the Spirit to be poured out upon, if you see what I mean. And God pours out the Spirit. Something needs to be there. He pours the Spirit upon something that's there. You remember Elijah builds up the altar, and then he calls for the fire of God to come down. Sometimes we want the fire before we build the altar. Hey, foundation, there has to be something for the Spirit to be poured out upon. Preach God's word in season and out of season. Maybe it's out of season at the moment, but it won't go on anyway. Prepare for the future. Look to God to bless you and go on persistently and patiently. Don't get discouraged. Don't get depressed by modern Europe. Things have been bad in Europe before, they're bad in Europe now. It's not the first time. There have been times, there've been times in European history where people have thought the gospel's finished. Voltaire, the French atheist, said, the day will come when nobody will know the name of Jesus. Actually, not many people know the name of Voltaire, but uh, <laughs> it's his name that's been forgotten, not Jesus' name. No, no, Jesus' name does not get forgotten. And God can move. But we have to be faithful, we have to, we have to go on. And William Carey, he used to say, I'm not very gifted, said William Carey, but I know how to plot. I'm a cobbler, I know how to... Prepare, make a pair of shoes and plod in something humble and simple. I'm not very gifted, but I know how to plod. But that plodder opened up the whole of India. And India would not have as many Christians as it does if it weren't for him. Everything good in India comes from the Christian church, as, as they're beginning to see. And then lastly, the kingdom of God comes in our lives by sacrifice. And remember how Jesus would put this in his parables. He would say it's like discovering a treasure. It's like treasure in a field. You discover that there's some field there that's, that's uh, being sold and you discover that most people don't know it. There's buried treasure there. And so you want that field. That field's got treasure in it. You'll become a millionaire if you can only get hold of that field. And so you go and you sell everything you have got in order to go and get that field. Just a picture, just a parable. But it means sometimes you give up everything you, 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 you've got because you so much want the presence of the kingdom of God in your life. You count the cost and you sacrifice. That, that man buying the treasure in the field, getting that field because of his treasure, he's willing to surrender everything if only he can get hold of that priceless treasure buried. Most people don't even see it, he's buried. But he knows it's there. He knows it's worth having. He'll do anything to get hold of it because it will make him a multi-multi-millionaire. 
That's, it's, not, it's not about money, it's about the kingdom, it's about spiritual blessing. You'll be a multi-millionaire in the things of God. Only you're willing to go after that, that great treasure and you'll do anything if only you can get hold of this kingdom. In other words, it's a way of speaking of sacrifice. You'll lay down your life if need be. He who loses his life will gain it. You surrender your life altogether in order to get hold of the blessings of the kingdom you, you even die. He who dies loses his life. I'm not talking literally, but spiritually. You forget yourself. You abandon yourself. You lay your life down in order to get hold of what God has got for you and his will for your life. And of course, I'm expounding all these things in order to make the point that this is how we pray. This is in the Lord's Prayer. We say, your kingdom come, Lord. We, we want to do this. We want to hear your voice. We want to change our mind. We want to have this childlike faith. You're praying for God's, God's kingdom, but you're praying for your, God's kingdom in yourself. And you make this matter of prayer. It's what you're wanting from God. It's what you're asking day and night. Lord, may your kingdom come. May your will be done. I, I, want, to, I want this to be in my life. I'm suggesting that the Lord's Prayer is the heart of prayer, that it's giving us, as it were, headings and topics for us to meditate upon, because these topics and headings, as it were, fill our prayer life. Our prayer life is to be full of the desire for the glory of God. Our prayer life is to be full of a desire for God's kingdom, out there and in our, and in our own lives as well. Our, our prayer life is, be, is to be full of a desire for God's will to be done. That's what happened with Jesus. Jesus did not want to die upon the cross. Jesus asked that he might not die upon the cross. You remember that? He went to God in prayer just before the, the crucifixion. He said, Father, if it be possible, if it be po- I don't know if it's possible or not, said Jesus, but if there's any way of saving the world without going through this cross, then I'd rather not go. If it be possible, take this cup from me. He didn't want to go through the cross. He sweat drops of blood because it was so scary. The thought of being abandoned by his father, he didn't want to go through that. Yet he prayed the same prayer as he told us to pray. He prayed, nevertheless, your will be done. Have you ever prayed that to God? Have you ever said to the Lord, Lord, I'm, I don't know how you pray, but I pray like this. Lord, I'm a bit scared to pray this prayer. I tell the Lord I'm scared to pray this prayer. Lord, I'm a bit scared to pray this prayer, but I think I'm going to pray it anyway. I just want your will to be done. And you ask the in every situation you're in, it's a scary thing to pray. And you, can, you can tell the Lord you're scared. In every situation you're in, you say, Lord, I, I want you to reveal your will. And I'm going to do it. I'm going to do your will. Show it to me. Show me what's right, and I'll do it. Show me what's wrong, and I'll get rid of it. Now just take hold of me. Uh, let your will be done in my life. You pray, and you plead. You go into God, the presence of God. And you plead, let your name be glorified. Your name be honoured, your name be sanctified. Let your kingdom come in me. Let your will be done. Please give me some daily bread, forgive all my sins and protect me and I'll be a child of your kingdom. By faith and patience I'll inherit the promises that are upon my life. That's how you live. That's the way to live. Easy to get saved. You're going to get saved? Get saved tonight. Believe in Jesus, you're saved. Finish. Your sins are forgiven. That's only the barest beginning. The forgiveness of sins is just the barest beginning. Just as it were going through the front door. 
I used to live near the British Museum. Love to go to the British Museum. Go through these revolving doors. And there you can stay all day, every day for the whole school holidays. And you'll never come to the end of what's there. That's what salvation is like. Only getting saved is just going through the revolving doors. The whole kingdom is there ahead of you. The whole great treasure house of all that God has got for you is there. But being saved is just going through the front door. Only the barest beginning. Now, by faith and patience and persistent prayerfulness, you have to inherit the promises of God. He's got a plan for your life. He's promising to do things for you. He's promising a calling. He's promising he'll meet all of your needs to fulfill that calling. He's promising that every single thing you ever do for Jesus is laid up as treasure in heaven. Don't even live for this world. Live for the well done of Jesus. And one day he'll say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter. All these things you did, I kept them for you. They're all here for you. I, put, I, put, I laid them all up as treasure. So here, look, there's a whole treasure house. And you'll say, well, Lord, I don't, I don't remember doing that. When did I see you naked and I came and clothed you? When did I see you in prison? I came and visited. I don't remember doing anything like that for you. And the Lord will say, you weren't even bothered about keeping the records. But I kept the records. Everything you ever did for me is here. And I'm going to give it back. Here it is. Finally, the nice thing is, you get rewarded twice. You inherit the kingdom now, and then you inherit it all over again when you get to final glory. You get rewarded twice. You inherit the kingdom here, and then it all comes back to you again, the second time, when you meet with Jesus. And he says to you, well done. Let's stand and let's pray. Our Father, I pray that we may learn how to inherit the kingdom. That this may become the theme of our ambitions, the theme of our prayerfulness day after day, persistently, as we let Jesus be the one who guides our prayers. As we hear his voice and we pray that he may be glorified, that his kingdom might come, that his will might be done, that we might be provided for. Teach us, Lord, to follow the amazing wisdom of Jesus and inherit the promises. Teach us to make this Lord's Prayer the guidelines of our life, that we meditate upon these things day and night, your glory, your kingdom, your will, your faithfulness in meeting our needs, your great forgiveness, your great protection. Teach us to know these things, live upon them, so that we inherit the promises and live for the day when you say to us, well done, do it, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.